Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome to another episode of Talking with Traders. And this week, I'm delighted to announce that we've got another guest, another returning guest, but this time not a returning guest from previous years on the podcast, but in fact, a guest who's already appeared on this recent season of Talking with Traders right at the beginning of the year. It's Nick van Rensburg, who is a macro strategist. Uh, and a trader in his own right. And Nick and I do a little bit of work together on the side. Uh, But his last podcast with me was so interesting and so well received by the listeners. Uh, And given everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks since then, given the collapse in many of the growth stocks in the US, and of course, the latest thing being the uh, invasion of Russian forces into, into Ukraine and all of the volatility that that's creating in the market. I felt it was a very opportune time to bring Nick back onto the podcast so that we can update his views and talk about the outlook for the rest of the year based on the fact that some of the stuff he predicted or suggested was likely has in fact happened. And where do we stand from here? So Nick, welcome back to the podcast and thanks for joining me again. Thanks, Goss. Uh, good to be back. Yeah, thank you. So in the last podcast, uh, you you left a, one particular line, which I really liked, and you said your view on markets is that markets are complex adaptive systems. And that's right. And they, they continually adapt to changing environments, to changing news. And we've certainly had our fair share of changing uh, backdrop in this last two months of the year. Obviously, the latest top of mind thing uh, right now is geopolitical risk. Uh, COVID seems to have largely been completely forgotten about now, and it's, we've now got something new to worry about. So, and that is the 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 geopolitical risk, the the war that's currently going on in Ukraine, with Russian forces having invaded there. And uh, as we speak today, they are looks as if there's a hell of a big convoy of of Russian. Um, military equipment heading towards Kiev and they're up they're they're stepping up the uh the intensity of the military action there you did suggest that this was one of the strong risks uh in in 2022 you said that in all likelihood it wouldn't happen before the Beijing Winter Olympics and that was correct but he certainly didn't wait long uh, it basically the Beijing Olympics ended but last week Sunday uh, or two weeks Sunday ago, and and a couple of days later, the Russian forces basically were moving into Ukraine. Um, let's revisit that now because this is obviously top of mind for for people at the moment. 
watching what's going on in the markets and how the how things are shifting around all of this. Can you give us a bit of an updated view of what you're seeing or how you're how you're treating this new the, the, this realized geopolitical risk as it stands right now? Yeah, I think it's worth maybe just taking a step back as to what happened since we spoke in the first week of January. On the 4th of Feb, the uh, Beijing Olympics kicked off. And at the, on the same day, Putin and Xi signed a whole range of cooperation agreements between Russia and China. And uh, I think Xi called it a no-limits friendship, which at the time I thought was quite strange. You know, sometimes something just sticks in your head and you kind of wonder. It's quite an extreme statement to make, a no-limits friendship. Any event, what happened since is the Olympics happened, and then the day after the Olympics, Putin made his speech last week, Monday, and he acknowledged um, the independence of two Ukrainian kind of uh, separatist republics, which weren't previously acknowledged. Uh, they are pro-Russian, and he then claimed that they were requesting uh, military help from Russia because they are under constant attack. Now. These republics, this came from, you know, this came from invasions in 2014-15 when um, the Minsk agreements were signed between Russia and uh, Ukraine. And what, part of that agreement was meant to be a, a ceasefire, no weapons. Uh, those are two of the main things. And what happened since is that there's been constant fighting between Ukrainian forces and the two separate republics. Also, a lot of U.S. weapons came into Ukraine. So in Putin's view, the Minsk agreement was null and void, and therefore he didn't have to abide by it anymore. And um, the evasion, invasion basically happened two days later. One of the key red lines for Russia has been that they don't want NATO to ever step foot in Ukraine, and Ukraine needs to be an independent country with uh, a completely, complete neutrality. Um, I think the original idea was to go in there and it would be a raid, so you wouldn't really fight with the population, you would just go from city to city until you get to Kiev, take over Kiev and uh, put in a puppet regime that is pro-Russian. And then you would move on to the next countries along the list. His big scheme is to, uh, to rebuild the Russian empire. And um, he's basically gone reasonably far. I think they definitely got more kickback from Ukrainians than what they originally anticipated. But as you say, I think things are about to level up in a big way. And the Russians aren't scared to use extreme force. So I think it might get ugly in the next day or two. Mm. Now, that, that's right. And that's obviously the big fear. And I mean, it's just devastating to see the humanitarian crisis that is unfolding there. And, and obviously, our greatest sympathies go out to the, the people of Ukraine. Uh, the West's reaction has been quite severe, uh, and not, not militarily, not, not yet anyway, but it's quite surprising in a way, because initially going into this, one almost got the feeling that the West was quite weak and a bit disconnected and not up to the fight. But they've really come together in quite an aggressive way economically. The sanctions that the West have imposed on Russia are very severe, very heavy. Um, and you know, things like cutting certain Russian banks out of SWIFT and targeting the Russian central bank, bank etc. Presumably, uh, certainly from everything that I've read, it looks as if the, the West's response has been much harsher than what Putin might have anticipated. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, up to maybe Friday or Saturday, it looked like the response was really, really weak and that he was going to get away with a lot. And then on Sunday, they came out and said that they would freeze the assets of the Russian central bank, which are the, the, the central bank reserves um, held in Europe. And uh, this, this was a big setback. So if you think about each central bank has got reserves, and those are held normally in dollars, euros, yen, maybe remember uh, gold, treasuries, and the like. Now, this, the Russian central bank had over $640 billion of this of reserves, which is very large. And approximately half of that is outside of the country, you know, not in China and not in Russia. Mm. Um, this is what they've frozen because generally these, you know, the, the monies, the euros, the, the dollars, the treasuries, whatever it may be, is held with foreign banks. And, um, this got frozen. So what that means is that they don't have access to foreign currency. They are less, they are less capable or able to defend their currency, which is weakening very fast. And they're also less capable to sell euros, let's say, and transfer the money to the treasury to fund the war. Now, roughly half of their reserves are still in country in Russia and in China, in Romania and in gold. So that does give them quite a bit of space. It's still a large amount of reserves, but that was a very big setback for the Russian Central Bank. I don't think they saw it coming and I definitely didn't see it coming. I was quite impressed. It was like the ace of spades, you know, the trump card that got dealt. Yeah. And uh, it definitely, I uh, think, gave them pause. I think the other thing that's quite interesting is, uh, you know, that is also quite a good message to China, which we can get to in a little bit. But uh, it, what impressed me is that the European cohesion has probably been better than what I anticipated, while the Russian cohesion has been worse than I anticipated. It seems like Putin is a little bit, uh, he's on his own at the moment, and he didn't do, one of the things I expected is that normally what you do before war is you run a lot of propaganda domestically to get the buy-in of the Russian people. And he really didn't do much of that. I mean, I was waiting for it throughout the, the Olympics and it didn't happen. It only started on the Friday before the Olympics ended. And that was clearly a very short period of time. And, um, you know, we've seen the backlash from the Russian people. They are not impressed by this at all. Mm. Yeah, no, they're certainly not. The, the, the Russian stocks that are listed outside of Russia uh, have been decimated. I mean, we think about Spurbank and Magnet, and these are companies that many listeners might not have heard of. But I mean, if you go and have a look at the charts of some of these companies, you'll see that they've been absolutely smashed. I mean, they look as if they're heading for zero. Um, is this an opportunity to pick up you know, Russian assets which are viable businesses, but have been completely sold into the ground, or do we just stay away completely? I think if it wasn't for the fact that the that the West uh, froze the central bank's assets, then I would definitely be interested in it. But the fact that they've done that is, you know, that the, the Russians still have to retaliate. They've done little things like said the Russians are not allowed to repay offshore, you know, currency loans, so they're not allowed to pay the interest or the capital. Um, this may actually cause Russia to default on their debt, mm. which is an issue for bond investors. But, you know, as part of the, any kind of retaliation, uh, one of the things we saw last week is that the clearinghouse were trying to unwind sales by foreigners of domestic Russian shares. So if you sold Russian shares in Russia as an EM investor last week, 
uh, those may not settle. And they've closed the exchange yesterday and today. Mm-hmm. So there's a real risk that they unwind those trades and that you think you've sold, but you have not. The second problem you've got is, is once, let's assume you, the, the transaction did clear, you will now be in contravention of SWIFT, you know, SWIFT sanctions to get the money out of Russia because you require sh- uh, SWIFT to, to shift the money back into dollars or euros. So it's yeah. a real problem for, you know, for offshore investors. And I suspect that one of the, the, the legs of a retaliation could be to just nationalize the shares owned by foreigners. The FT estimates is about $86 billion worth of equities owned by foreigners on the Russian exchange. So this is, these excludes the GDRs and the ADRs listed in London, Germany, and um, the US. These are the domestic companies. I suspect you may lose those if you bought those. And if you lose those, then the odds that they would um, honor the um, ADRs or the GDRs in London or US or Germany are probably about zero. So there is a very real risk of 100% loss. And, you know, Russia has never had an issue with nationalizing assets. They've done it many times before. And um, this is an act of war in their, their eyes. So I can see them, you know, pulling no punches especially after MSCI and FTSE said that they will probably exclude Russia from the MSCI and the FTSE indices. So what that means is up to recently, Russia was maybe three and a half percent of the EM index, and that's going to go to zero. Now the prices have already fallen. That's probably down to 1.8% somewhere around there. And that'll just go to zero. So then there's no reason for them to kowtow to any foreign investors whatsoever. You know, if people don't have to buy Russia, they probably won't buy Russia. And as a result, you know, they'll just close that door and that'll be the end of it. So the Russian central bank will end up owning those shares or they'll distribute it or do whatever they need to do with it. Um, so I would definitely not be buying Russian shares. I mean, they, you know, I've thought about it every single day for the last week because they really do look cheap. But I think if ever there's a risk where you're going to lose 100% of your money, it is right now, especially seeing that they have not retaliated yet and that these shares will be falling out of indices. Even if they don't fall out of the indices, you know that $86 billion owned by foreigners will have to get sold in the market because there's no reason for them to own it if the, if the shares are not part of their benchmark, if yeah. Russia is not part of the benchmark. Mm-hmm. So you're going to either have a significant amount of supply or they'll just relieve you of your shares. So either way, you've got downside. Okay. So high risk play to be buying Russian shares. Don't do it is effectively what you're saying. Uh, uh, I would definitely not suggest anyone do it now. Yeah, Look, it'll be a good story at the pub on a Friday, off, <laughs> Friday <laughs> evening. But <laughs> so, so if you're going to do it, do it with very little money. <laughs> Use your bare money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. All right. Look, I mean, Obviously, this situation is very fast moving. It's very fluid. Um, and there's variety of possible scenarios from here. So I don't know whether you've given some thought. I'm sure knowing you, Nick, you must have given some thought to it. But some possible scenarios on the way out of this situation, or I mean, not necessarily the way out. Maybe we're only just beginning to go into this massive big mess. But you know, one would think that this is almost feels like a Putin um last roll of the dice kind of a thing and he's either going to fight to the bitter death or it's, it's going to be a scorched earth kind of thing as which the, the consequences of that are too scary to even imagine um i mean i just can't see this guy backing down 
I don't know whether you, whether you'd agree with that. Um, have you got some scenarios <laughs> yeah. in your mind about what, what, where do we potentially go from here if we had to pick two or three possible scenarios from from this situation where we are currently to where we could possibly go with it? I would say the base case is that he probably takes Kiev in the next couple of days because um, I think he'll just apply overwhelming force. And uh, I don't think they're going to feel that much for the human life, uh, which is unfortunate, but that is the reality of how they've operated in Syria and other places. So my base case would be that Kiev will fall in coming days. Uh, I think they would go after Moldova next. He's kind of already got a proxy leader in place in Belarus. So Belarus is a friend of Russia. And the end game would be to go for the Baltic states, which are Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Um, he said that publicly. Mm. Um, there was a Goldman Sachs call last week with the ex-head of the British intelligence and the ex-defense um, uh, secretary for the U.S., and both of them basically said, look, he's already given us his plans. He said it publicly in speeches and in essays. So for us to doubt him would be silly. Like he's given you his plan, we don't need to guess. Now, the, the last three states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, would be troublesome. They might be very small, but they are NATO countries. And that yeah. is where you will get U.S. military involvement. So I am not sure that that will be anything happening soon, but I think... If Kiev falls, I would assume that Moldova is going to be next and Moldova is on the border with Romania. So that would be relevant for companies like Nepi Rock Castle that's got a lot of operations in Romania mm. and um, Poland and also uh, Redefine, which has recently bought Ecopulsa or taken its stake up in Ecopulsa. Yeah. Those two businesses would be directly affected. Uh, so I'd say that's scenario one. That to me looks like the higher probability scenario at the moment. The second scenario would be that somebody deposes him in Russia, which, you know, he's been very successful at holding on to power for a long time. He comes out of the KGB, he's a predator. I, would, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it, but you've got to say that the, the, the environment is such that there might be a, an attempt or two. So I wouldn't say that that's a 0% possi possibility, um, but that would be one way to get to peace if somebody were to depose him, because my guess is that they would be against the war. Mm -hmm. So it'll be pro-peace people that would take over. Um, that's a second scenario. And a third scenario would be that they agree some peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine. Now, they had meetings yesterday. I think it's quite unlikely that they get to a peace agreement right now. They might maybe, in, you know, maybe in a couple of days' time if the Ukrainians feel they've got their back against the wall. The issue, though, is you need to get to get to a peace agreement. Ukraine would need to agree to be neutral forever. It may never apply for NATO to be a NATO member. It may never host foreign um, weapons, missiles, or anything of the sort. And it will just be a very neutral country, but keep its sovereign independence. At the mm -hmm. moment, I don't sense that that's where the Ukrainians are. They seem to be willing to fight, and they are agitated, especially after yesterday the Russians. Uh, attacked a pro-Russian city, Kharkov, and they, they Kharkov, sorry, and they um, bombed it, you know, to smithereens. So it's it, it just doesn't seem like they're there to make friends. The initial plan might have been to do a raid, to be quick, just take over the um, you know the parliament and the, the presidency in Kiev, and then move on to other things. 
uh, it's, they're definitely getting stuck in more deeply. Mm. So for the moment, I'd say the base case is that it gets more bloody. And then, uh, you know, if there's a peace negotiation, it would be at some later stage. Right. Okay. Okay. Horrible stuff to be talking about. While we're on the yeah. topics of, uh, of of geopolitical risks, one of the others that you did flag as a as another high risk and, and a possibility for this year was uh, China and uh, China going in and taking over Taiwan. And I know at the time you suggested there was there's some sort of theory out there that China would potentially be looking on to see what's going on and how how Russia and Ukraine goes and potentially could sneak in and try and take Taiwan whilst the West got their focus uh, very much uh, diverted towards Ukraine. How do you feel about that now? I mean, any any further updates on that, on the China-Taiwan situation? You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. I would say that up to Sunday, the, the probabilities actually look to be increasing that China may do something. I mean, just to start off, as a base case, this is not an optimal year because this is the year that Xi Jinping wanted uh, stability and harmony. And they've got, you know, so it was an internal looking year for China. They need to stabilize situations with regards to growth and uh, the property sector, which is highly indebted. He's got the, um, the, the uh, you know, meetings at the end of the year, which will, you know, secure his power for a longer period. So this wasn't going to be the natural year for them to do it. But if the opportunity arose, you know, they were quite opportunistic with Hong Kong. They took it a long time before the agreement. Uh, you know, to, instead of 2047, they took it in 20 or 2020 or 2021. Mm-hmm. 2020, sorry. So there was a chance that they would do something. I, I suspect that the, the sanctions on the, the, the freezing of the foreign, the, the central bank's um, assets might have scared them a bit because there's no country with more central bank assets than uh, China. They've got 3.2 trillion in central bank assets, reserves, which is about 20% of their GDP. And my guess is a fair amount of that would be offshore. We know from US data that about a trillion dollars sits in US treasuries. And for the rest, the composition of the assets are a state secret. So we don't really know where it's spread or how around the world, but they could at least lose a trillion dollars if they were to make a move on Taiwan right now. Uh, I suspect that may slow down any kind of, um, you know, uh, ambition that they might have to do anything about Taiwan. Right. Okay. Yeah. But let's say it does happen. I mean, let's just sketch a scenario uh, because obviously it's a risk. It's not zero. So that the probability is definitely not zero, but it's not maybe yeah. not a hundred right zero. now either. Um, you know, what happens in that case? China is a uh, Taiwan, excuse me, is the is the world's biggest semiconductor manufacturer, and that I guess is the greatest risk of of China taking over Taiwan, isn't it? Yeah, if you take Russia, China, and Taiwan together, that's quite a powerful force because essentially Russia would supply the raw materials, China is a manufacturing hub, and uh, Taiwan is a semiconductor hub. 
Taiwan Semiconductor is the most advanced semiconductor manufacturing company in the world. And the essential outcome that you will get to if you had to cut it down to one sentence would be that Xi Jinping will be turning the tap on the growth of the NASDAQ. And if he doesn't want it to grow, he'll close the tap. And if he's happy for it to grow and relations between the US and China are fine, he'll open the tap. And I think that's something that, you know, as we discussed last time, NASDAQ investors have definitely not thought about because it's a not insignificant risk and it's got significant downside. You basically become a cyclical. We've seen this with magnesium, fertilizer, uh, rare earths, where when China is short, they basically keep all the production for themselves. And then when they've got surplus, they export it. So you basically get the little, you get the overflow. And when mm. there's no overflow, you get nothing. And the result of that is, is because prices are set on the overflow, being the internationally traded and transported goods, these prices can react very violently. You know, fertilizer on Friday, China and Russia both cut fertilizer exports, uh, practical reasons in the case of Russia and Ukraine, because they have war. Mm. And, you know, SWIFT obviously would be an issue at some point. But um, China has got, they wanted to keep fertilizer at home. And the U.S. fertilizer price went up by 30% in a day. Oh. And that's the kind of issue that you could have. It's 29% in New Orleans price uh, up on Friday. Those are the kind of issues that could become more common. In a world, I think one of the, the other things to discuss later is inflation. Mm. And in a world which is not, you know, which is a multipolar world, we've got different parties vying for power and being aggressive towards each other. That is an inflationary world. It's very hard for that to be a disinflationary or deflationary world. You know, so you can get to inflation or stagflation, growth up and inflation up or growth down and inflation up. Yeah. That is, you know, we at the end of globalization, you know, that ship has sailed. I mean, all these companies, Apple's probably the number one beneficiary of uh, globalization in history. And I suspect that uh, their fortunes could change for the worse in the you know, coming years. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about inflation because you, you you brought it up and it certainly was one of the talking points that we wanted to, to touch on anyway. Um, and I wanted to sort of frame it that besides the geopolitical risks that we are focused on right now, there still are a whole bunch of other issues which we, we flagged and spoke about it at length in our previous podcast. And those issues have not gone away. One of them obviously is inflation. Um, and leading from that was discussion around the hawkish Fed, uh, rising rates in the US, tapering of, of stimulus, etc. So besides the geopolitical risks that we're dealing with now, there's a hell of a lot of other headwinds for financial markets and for equity markets anyway. Let's just talk about that issue of inflation, though, uh, specifically what, what, what you were saying about how yeah, where do we go from here? Is it is this inflation likely to remain at elevated levels uh, by historical standards? And from that, then, you know, where's the Fed at this point in time? Okay, so if we go back to what we discussed last time, the idea was that maybe in Feb or March, inflation would peak and then start rolling over. Why then? Well, because in March, April last year is when the inflation picked up, so the base for inflation you know, increased. So it's obviously more difficult to grow against a higher base. Mm. It really kicked in probably from April, so I would still expect that inflation would probably peak in March, but I suspect that the effects of inflation is going to be around for much longer than what we previously thought. 
and the reason for it is Russia-Ukraine. Unless we get to peace soon in Russia-Ukraine, you know, I had a look at the year-over-year changes in a couple of commodities. The following commodities are up between 50 and 60% from exactly one year ago. Oil, aluminium, nickel, wheat, and natural gas are up between 50 and 60% over the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't sound anything like the Fed's 2% inflation target. No. It also doesn't sound anything like the 7.5% inflation we saw in, in uh, January. And unfortunately, the, you know, the, the effect of Russia-Ukraine is because Ukraine is such a big wheat exporter, they do about 25% of the world's wheat exports along with Russia. Um, I counted those together last time when we spoke. And the reason why is that Ukraine would be, their export would be affected by military action, which it is at the moment. The Black Sea is blocked, so they cannot export from their ports in the south. And Russia, because if you can't do swift payments, you may not get paid for, for shipments. And um, the other thing that's happened since is that some of the shipping companies said that they won't be shipping from Russia because they're not, you know, they're scared that they won't get paid themselves and they don't want to be in war zones or anything of the sort. So the supply chain frictions are increasing. It's specifically affecting oil, palladium, aluminium, nickel, wheat, corn, nat gas, and fertilizer. So fertilizer, wheat, and corn is food. Oil and nat gas is energy. Palladium, aluminium, and nickel goes into a whole range of uh, you know, vehicles, uh, aluminium, window frames, all range of different things. And unfortunately, oil and nat gas, along with the foods, are, in my mind, bad inflation. Bad inflation is the inflation that the central banks always exclude when they look at CPI. The reason why they exclude it is not to be malicious. They just exclude it because it's more volatile. And there's not much you're going to do with interest rates when food inflation is up. You know, the intention is not to reduce consumer discretionary spend even further. But these are essential items, like you have to transport to work and back. Uh, you have to have nut gas for heating in various countries. You have to eat wheat, corn, and then fertilizer goes into a range of foods. Uh, corn and rice and wheat are the top three users of fertilizer. So this is a problem as it's going to decrease consumer spend throughout this year. You know, it's basically like a reverse stimulus. It's taking money out of consumers' pockets. And um, so I can see that growth will slow throughout the year as a result of this, as consumption is being sucked away by inflation. And, um, you know, if you look at like something like wheat, the wheat price is at a high right now. To get to the point where it's going to reach the shelf in your store is a good couple of months away because it's now got to be transported from a farm to a mole, from a mole packaged, sent to DCs, from DCs to shops, and then eventually it'll be bought at the shop. And that's going to take a couple of months. So it'll take quite a while before it actually reflects at the CPI level. And um, so what that means is that it stays around for longer. And it's probably less likely that inflation, you know, the underlying broad inflation falls in, uh, I almost said in real terms, which which won't work for this discussion. But, uh, you know, the... uh, because you have to deduct inflation from inflation to get to real terms, and that gets us to zero, which is not where we are. No. So the, uh, the the issue here is, is that the base effects will definitely slow it a bit, but the effect of inflation is very real, and it will stay around for some time. It'll yeah. also suck, you know, consumer spending lower. So that's the thing. I mean, it, it's yeah, as you said, it was seven percent in January, but that's off a very um, it, it's 
we're now going to start to see the readings come down purely based on that on that base effect, but it's not likely to come down to the Fed's two percent target or even close to that. So, what if it settles somewhere in the middle, three and a half percent or four percent? Um, you know, where does that then mean that rates need to be pegged in in the U.S. and do, and and given everything that's happening now, given the the geopolitical risks and all that, can the Fed still afford to be as hawkish as what they? were looking to be when we when we spoke the last time. I mean, Goldman Sachs, I think, have pegged six interest rate hikes of 25 basis points this year, I think it is. Morgan Stanley has got also six or seven hikes pen, penciled in for this year. Do you think that that's feasible or is that just pie in the sky now? Uh, I don't think it's feasible. Um, the, the, the thing that surprised me last week is in the midst of the war, the Fed speakers that spoke were very hawkish. And I thought that they would tone down a little bit because of uncertainty. But I get the impression that Americans think they're really far away from the war and it's not going to affect them in any way. So my base case is that they will start hiking in March. And I think they'll continue for a couple of hikes after that. I would be surprised if they hike that many times because I think the economy will slow quite quickly as a result of the inflation sucking spending out of the economy. So, um, you know, the, the, the key things then is if food inflation and fuel inflation remains high, you will probably find that wage inflation will remain high as well because labor will ask for increases and continuously do so. Housing is still elevated. That will still stay elevated for a while, even though rates went up recently. But, um, you know, just as far as the seven rate hikes are concerned, you're seeing that from yesterday, today, especially today, you're seeing a lot of the rates um, the rate hikes being priced out of the market. So the market is now believing that the Fed will be uh, less hawkish. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, time will tell. Um, one of the Fed governors said he will only hike by 25 basis points unless the next inflation print is lower. Uh, sorry, is higher. And I think it is actually quite likely to be higher. So would they do 50 basis points? I'm not sure. That's what I would do if I was them because you need to be seen to do, to do something. But the reality is, you know, up to now, they've actually done absolutely nothing. The only thing they're doing is they've run down QE, so there won't be any more QE from the middle of this month. The meeting's around the 15th of March, and beyond that, they've done zero, yet inflation's running at 7.5%. So the Fed needs to start acting. There's no doubt about that. Mm. The question, obviously, is by how much they hike. I can't see them hiking because I think the economy just slows in the second half of the year. You know, I find it very hard to believe that it won't. And even this quarter and next quarter, you had quite a big effect in last year's GDP of two stimulus checks. And this year, we don't have any stimulus checks. So you're already batting against a high growth base. So it's plausible that growth will start disappointing in a quarter. And, um, you know, even before the inflation inflation effects. Right. It's quite clear to me, actually. It's quite an interesting point, just on a side point. You know, when I look at earnings forecasts, there's companies like Apple where people expect earnings to grow this year. And I think that's virtually impossible. I would give it extremely low odds because the base effect, you know, from the first quarter last year was just absolutely humongous. You know, their revenue went from 45 billion to 72 billion in one quarter. So that's 72, you know, 60% increase. And they're now batting against 72 billion. And that's impossible when you don't have any stimulus checks. So the revenue will be down. I'm, 99% 99% sure of that, uh, yet people expect earnings increases. And I think similarly, some of the economists might expect 
higher growth, you know, despite the fact that the base is quite high and inflation is higher and more persistent. Mm, okay. Wow. So it's quite a <laughs> quite a gloomy backdrop we've been talking about here, Nick. I mean, geopolitical risks, high inflation, Fed still likely to be somewhat hawkish, um, earnings growth likely to slow, economic growth likely to slow, stagflation. Um, based on all of that kind of a backdrop, but certainly not a friendly environment for equity investing uh, by and large. How, how do you position yourself now? I mean, when we spoke the last time, you, you made some valid points. You said, you know, value preference, preferred value to growth. You liked the rest of the world over the US. You liked UK over US assets. You were bullish oil. You were beginning to look at China tech as a possibility of basing. Um, still looks like it might be basing, but it's still weak. How do we position a portfolio in this tough environment? So I still like the UK. It's cheap and it's also uh, it's got a reasonably high energy component. So while energy prices are high, it should benefit. Uh, it's very underowned, which makes me less fearful of downside. The US remains very overowned. And I still believe that over the next decade, value will outperform growth, uh, at least over the couple of years. In the very short term, this situation in Europe with Ukraine is a definite headwind because it'll slow growth, which is usually not good for value. And similarly, it is bad for European equities. You know, if you look at European banks, they're probably down over 20% in the last month, mm. uh, around 20% in the last month. The reason being that they've got links to Russian banks. You know, they trade with each other, there's trade finance between them and so forth. So they, you know, when SWIFT, the issue with SWIFT is when you, once you play that card, there's two parties to a transaction. It's not just one side that loses. You know, somebody's loss is somebody else's gain or, or vice versa. And when you trade with each other constantly, it's quite likely that there will be losses within European banks. Mm -hmm. So I've been quite bullish on European banks, but this is definitely a setback. Uh, I would say if there's peace, I would definitely want to buy Europe because I think Europe is more likely to do stimulus. They did an 8 billion euro stimulus in Italy for energy costs about two weeks ago. And I would anticipate that you would see more of that. Also, Europe is pulled together better than what I thought they would, um, especially on Sunday with the central bank sanctioning. And the valuations are relatively cheap. So for right now, I prefer the UK. If there's peace, I will buy Europe. The US does not interest me that much. I still think the valuations are too high and I think it's heavily overowned. And if we have a situation where this escalates, which you know, is possible if he moves into Moldova or other places, that would be you know, a problem. So if you believe there's peace, then you can start buying European equities if you think that's the highest likely outcome. The, the most likely outcome. If you think that it could escalate, then I would avoid European equities. Uh, I think the US equities are good for a trade, but I think they're going to have a very, very tough first quarter earnings season, which is in April. Yeah. You know, like I said, I think Apple will miss, and not by a small margin. Uh, Amazon, probably the same. So there's quite a few businesses that would miss. And, um, you know, if the sentiment, if, if quite a lot of companies miss, then you won't have the situation we had with Amazon in the last results. The Amazon results were really poor, but they were seen as good because a lot of people just sold their Facebook, you know, shares way down after the Facebook, um, you know, guidance disappointed.
Mm. But Amazon's uh, guidance for this quarter is uh, less than 10% growth. Now, when you're trading on the kind of variations that they trade at, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Single-digit growth is um, that's the kind of stuff you should have on a very low valuation. Right. Okay. All right, Nick. Well, thank you very much. It's always always fascinating to speak to you. As I said earlier in the podcast, I'm fortunate to speak to you every week. But the listeners are, are, are lucky enough to have gotten you twice on this podcast in the last two months, which is, is a real privilege because your insights are so valuable. So thanks once again. Uh, very much appreciated that you've taken the time to, to join me on Talking With Traders today. Uh, and as listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, please do leave a review on the podcast app that you're using we'd appreciate it and we enjoy any feedback that you can give us so nick thanks very much and we'll chat again soon it's a pleasure thanks Garth. and uh, obviously this is quite a high risk podcast because the world's changing very fast yeah well it is fortunately it'll be broadcast basically in two days from now when we're uh, recording it so hopefully things might won't have changed too dramatically in that time although no doubt there will be some changes given the, the rapid moves in headlines at the moment Anyway, we'll speak again. Thanks, Nick. Great. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.